Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Don Lombardi, the founder of DW Drums and Drum Channel. If you know my history, I used to be a touring drummer, and DW Drums is a sought-after brand for touring artists and especially for endorsement deals. They revolutionized the drum pedal industry with a DW 5000 pedal. Listen as Don shares stories by locking in some of the top touring in-demand drummers with his products at DW to launch their success and revolutionary products. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Don Lombardi of DW Drums and Drum Channel. Don, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, and congratulations on your success doing these shows. Very informative. Thank you so much. Well, I'd like to start out the podcast with a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up, and what would you say your childhood was like? Uh, I'm L.A. bound. I grew up in California. Not so many original natives around here in California, but uh, in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, I, uh, my dad was in industrial real estate, uh, played a little bit of amateur trombone. My mom played a little bit of amateur piano, so there was music kind of in the house in those days. But uh, I was attracted to the drums when I was about nine years old. I saw some bands playing at a local park and uh, started taking drum lessons at a local music store down the street, which is actually where I started teaching when I was 16, Mm. several years later. But uh, I did that only for a short period of time and then got into sports and other things that were driving me in school. Uh, Mm. And so I kind of let drums go on the back burner and did the baseball thing. Mm. And when I was 14, I saw Buddy Rich. Ah. And I saw a television show that one of the... uh, one of the early shows that opened up with a close-up on the drums playing the hi-hat ride cymbal pattern. Yep. And I just said, Dad, I want to do that. So I didn't even know about the rest of the drum set or care. I just, I wanted to go on the hi-hat. So we went down to the music store and kind of a crazy start. The first instrument I had of the drum set was just the hi-hat pedal and two cymbals. Wow. So I would take that up to my room and had a practice pad. And just would work as much as I can on getting that hi-hat sound the same way the guy did it on on TV. Wow. Uh, interesting, you know, many years later, uh, talking to Peter Erskine about his approach towards teaching Neil Peart. Because mm. when Neil wanted to, you know, get more into swing patterns and doing the Buddy Rich Memorial Concert, which I was fortunate to produce with him. Mm. Uh, he said he wanted to get into learning more about swing. He had studied with Freddie Groover earlier, but mm. wanted to get back into it. So... I hooked him up with, with Peter, and it was it was great because Peter said the first thing I gave Neil was about three months of just the hi-hat only. So I didn't know that that was really important when I was 14 years old, but yep. fortunately the ability to, that's what I wanted, that's what I got. And then I worked up with drum lessons and added the snare drum, and then I got, that was a big thing. You know, I'm adding a wow. snare drum. Now yep. I got a snare drum and a hi-hat. Yep. Now, I added a, now I got a kick snare and hi-hat, you know, and. <laughs> and built a drum set kind of around that. So when I was 14, I kind of made a decision that I wanted to be a drummer. I was just attracted to that. You know, Mm. it was was appealing at a couple different levels. One, I guess almost you could say from a business standpoint, although I didn't think of it like that, Mm. but you're your own boss at that point. So, you know, you're, you're, you know, there's, there was expectations of my parents to be a lawyer, uh, you know, get a college degree to, uh, to pursue other avenues just like, well, you want to be a drummer. That's fun. But are you, you know, are you going to make a living as a drummer? It, yeah. <laughs> Classic story as a drum teacher. I started teaching this young student and his uh, parents were both doctors, mm. which was great. So they would drop him off. And like he was like 14 or 13, 14. And he studied with me for a couple of years. He was in high school now. And so at the beginning, it was like, we want our take, son to take some music lessons, and he's attracted to drums, so we're excited that you'll give him drum lessons, and mm. really excited that he wants to learn, you know, to play drums. And that was like a, a great, you know, we had we had a great relationship. I always did between the parents and my students and, and myself. But a couple of years later, they come in and say, "Don, you got to help me with this. If you could talk to my son, he wants to be a drummer." I'm just <laughs> like. <laughs> I guess I did too good of a job as a drum teacher. I can't tell him if he wants to be a drummer, he should go ahead and be a drummer. But <laughs> you go full circle. So, wow. so 15, 16, I had uh, a great local music teacher uh, who was a studio player in town, did a lot of shows, mm-hmm. uh, gave private lessons. 
And then I kind of outgrew him a little bit and, uh, and started playing. My first professional job was when I was 16, actually. My, mm. uh, I, my senior summer in high school, I went uh, to Las Vegas with a show band. Wow. I auditioned because a friend of mine was a bass player. And he said, we need a drummer because we're auditioning other people for the show band. Do you want to come and just fill in for the day? And I filled in and this, this, uh, Don Palmer was the guy's name. He had a, a popular comedic type show band, Don uh -huh. Palmer and Cindy Lane. And he said, hey, you want to go to Vegas with us for six weeks? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so it, it, it lapped over to the first two weeks of me going back to my senior year, which panicked my parents that I was like running off to Vegas and I'd never come back. Wow. <laughs> what happened to our drummer son, but, but I did come back and finished high school. Of course. So, Amazing. so music was always part of my life. And, and I was, a I was, if you look at that period of time, it was amazing mm. uh, from a drumming standpoint and from a music standpoint too, because I'm talking, I was born in 45. Mm -hmm. So in 60, which is when uh, John Coltrane hit with Elvin Jones. Yep. A couple of years after that, the Beatles hit. You know, you were just inundated every couple of years with something new mm. that was being imposed on you as a drummer to learn how to do. Yep. Um, and and I was very probably overly uh, jazz oriented to the point to where that I just loved playing in jazz trios. I loved playing in jazz bands, mm. although that was not a way I thought I could make a living because there wasn't that much work. Yeah. And there was far better. Oh, I'm like 17, 18. You know, there's professional drummers that are playing jazz in town. You know, yeah. Hollywood in those days was was a, a recording capital and music was all done live. Mm -hmm. I mean, in those days. So there was you were you could be a recording drummer and do that for your whole life and never work a club gig. Yep. I was just the opposite. I I love playing in bands. I love playing in clubs and I love teaching. So the biggest part of my younger growing up life was, you know, learning how to play drums, having a great teacher, a couple of great teachers at a very early age. Mm -hmm. Nick Ciroli was kind of my mentor, uh, a name that most people wouldn't know out there. He died at an early age of a heart attack, but mm. he was one of the top young studio drummers in town. Mm. Uh, and then I studied for five years with Freddie Gruber, who was another luminary teacher. So wow. I, 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 in studying with them, I always looked at what they were showing you as a student to go home and practice. Mm -hmm. But I was equally studying how they taught me what they were doing. Yeah. So I could pass that on and became friends with some of my teachers. And they were actually, at, when I was teaching more professionally at 20, 21, 22, I, uh, I had a lot of students come to me from professional teachers in town whose schedules were full. So mm. I, for 20 years, pretty much from 20 until the time, or 16, actually, I started teaching, but full-time teaching as part of my business model, if you will, and playing yeah. in clubs started when I was 19 or 20. And that went right through the initial periods of, of me starting drum workshop, which wow. started as a teaching studio. Wow. So I was teaching in three music stores. I'm going through my younger days too fast here. Is no, 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 idea? you're telling it perfect. <laughs> okay. So basically, so basically I, 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 I was running about 30, 40 students a week mm -hmm. teaching out of three music stores. The primary one was Dick Charles Music. There was South Bay Music and then Bay Music here in, when I lived in Santa Monica. Mm. Uh, so, but Dick Charles Music in Glendale, I was there three days a week. I was teaching five days a week eventually running 40 to 50 students a week, plus playing five, six nights and afternoons, whatever would come up that you would, you know, never turn down a gig, whatever it would be. But yeah, in those days, and hard for younger drummers to think about this today, but you would be a house, you could be a drummer in a house band. Mm. Uh, there was a club called PJs on the Strip. They had a jazz room in the back. They had a piano player there that was there for years and he had a trio. So I worked with him for a while. Then uh, the owner of that club built another one. We went on so to tell a young drummer today. Yeah, I worked in a club for uh, for three years or four years. Every year you have a contract to go another year. They're like, whoa, you know, I I played the eleven o'clock set at the Whiskey. You know, it's like yeah. for an hour. That was my club experience. So so I uh, I got in with a rock and roll band when I was nineteen, twenty, twenty one, which was a spinoff of Buddy Holly's Crickets. Mm. One of the original members of the Crickets was Nicky Sullivan, and he formed another band out here in L.A., and that was a, a rock group, and uh, it was a very popular club in Hollywood. So I did that, and then I got a call, actually, when I was with another show band by this jazz piano player, studio singer, mm -hmm. um, and he said, I've got this contract for two years. 
at this club. If you want to be my drummer, I want you to be. So for me, it was like perfect because I loved yeah. teaching, then going to the gig at night and playing. Uh, I got to do, you know, kind of both. And that that gave me a, a financially put me in a position as good or better than guys who were going out and touring in those days. Because mm. you didn't have the Madonna, Michael Jackson, you know, you didn't have these huge fees that these drummers were getting, these major mega tours. They were far and few between. Yeah. Uh, and they were usually as a result of being in a band. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're probably not going to be another Beatles. They're not going to be another Rolling Stones. So, yeah. I mean, as time went by, the popular bands of the 70s and 80s, you know, kind of started waning. Mm. So, so I kind of found myself where I was running all around town to give these lessons at these three music stores. And I surveyed my students and about half of them were driving age. Because I was getting older students in those days. Yeah. Uh, and so I just kind of surveyed them and said, hey, if I open my own little studio in Santa Monica, a couple blocks from my house, I don't have to drive three different areas of town and then go to the job at night, you know, eating my sandwich in the car as I finish my <laughs> eight o'clock lesson and I got to be at work at nine o'clock. I said, what if I rent a little space in Santa Monica and start my own teaching studio? Would you guys drive and come in? And about half of them said yes. So I started drum workshop wow. with the name workshop being seminars and lessons. And that was the beginning of my, my starting drum workshop as a teaching studio, if you will. And I would give private lessons to my students. I had a couple of other teachers that came in and gave private lessons as we built up a private teaching clientele. Mm -hmm. And then the workshop idea was to have Nick Ciroli, Shelly Mann, mm -hmm. Eric Kotler, have these you know luminary studio drummers come in once a month and do what you would call a drum clinic nowadays yeah. where they would have people come in. So uh, wow. and then I learned my first, my first real business lesson because when I was teaching at music stores and I would go on the road for four weeks or six weeks, uh, I just didn't pay the rent to rent the room. So I didn't lose any money, but, and I wasn't gaining any teaching experience, you know, any, yeah. any teaching money. When you have your own business and you're paying rent to a landlord and you go out of town for six weeks, you're not making any money teaching, but you still have to pay the rent. So, I, so the the idea was, uh, and pretty much all my business experience, I would say, came from the school of hard knocks, if you will. Yeah. But uh, uh, I I I took that experience and I used that kind of in the back of my mind as I started growing DW. Well, what are the things that you can do financially? You have to have a successful business. Mm. At the same time, you have to look at what you can do to the drumming community to improve the quality of the life of drummers, yep. which was the only business I knew. And I and I, I knew it well, being one in the trenches for 15 years, pretty much at that point when I started DW. Yep. So so that was that was me giving lessons at my own little store. And uh, one of my students was the son of Tom Beckman. Mm who was the owner of the Camp Go Drum Company. Wow. And uh, he bought it as a business venture, not a labor of love to being in the drum business, uh, but it was uh, uh, it was purchased by Custom Electronics. Mm -hmm. uh, they never really developed it and got it going as a drum brand because they got busy with their amplifiers and other areas of, of, of the industry. Yeah. So he bought it, I believe, in around 70, 71, maybe 72. And he ran it until he walked in to pick up his son one day, I was giving him a lesson. And he said, Don, I have the opportunity to become president of Roland US. They want to come over here from Japan, set up United States distribution. This was in 77, wow. late 76, 77. So he said, I'm, I'm going to sell my drum company. The Japanese company Hoshino, which is the Tama brand, mm -hmm. wants to buy it, but they only want the name because they want to make everything in Japan. They don't want this old tooling that makes the camp go pedal and the lugs and wow. the hoops and everything for the drums. He said, mm -hmm. I'll, if, if you're interested in buying all that, because he knew I wanted to stay in town and he knew I had some inventions that I had made. So he saw I kind of had a little bit of an inventor side to me too. Mm -hmm. uh, he just said, I'll sell you the tooling dies and moles. I'll go back and approach them with the idea of just buying the name. So he kind of sold the company in two parts, if you will. Wow. So that long story short is when I said yes and got into putting my little toe into the manufacturing world. And the key thing for me was the bass drum pedal. That mm. was the that was the one product that all the guys, the studio guys in town, 
they all had their endorsements with Ludwig Schlinger and Rogers. And then yep. back in those days, it was starting to become Tama Pearl and Yamaha. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they would all play the, the, the pretty much what in those days was the Campco pedal. Mm. It was the Campco model 5000 pedal in the Campco catalog. Yep. So when I didn't have the rights to use the name Campco, but I could start making the pedal. I just kept the name 5000 with that question comes up sometimes. Why do you call it the 5000 pedal? Yeah. But I just, I just, Kept it because it was originally the Campco 5000. Then I made it the DW5000. Wow. And started making, knowing how it had been somewhat abused from a manufacturing standpoint, mm. uh, because it was made the same way it had been made for 20 years. Yeah. But drummers weren't playing the way they did 20 years ago. So it felt really good for the jazz guy. But when the rock guy took it out, it wasn't really holding up. So, mm. so my first challenge was like, how can I take a product that feels great? and make it roadworthy without changing the feeling of it. Yeah. And that's, we came up with, fortunately, when those early days, I got many patents that uh, that allowed us to make improvements on that one product, which is what we got into. Mm. Uh, and during that time when I was teaching, another student who walked in was John Good, wow. so uh, who became my business partner throughout the life of, of Drum Workshop. So mm-hmm. at the point we started making things, I was like, hey, I'm teaching now. 30 students a week, still playing full time, doing a little bit of studio work. Well, I would never consider myself a studio musician, but yeah. in those days, there was jingles, things. That, I mean, there was so much going on that the the studio guys couldn't be every place at one point at one time. Mm. And some of that stuff didn't, you know, you didn't need to be a, uh, a studio drummer, a great guy in order to play eight bars of Bossa Nova for some movie track or something. So, yeah. but, but I was a busy guy running all around. Plus I had my son who I was helping raise. So it was full time. And so I said to John, you know, hey, why don't we start making some pedals and you can help me with that. I've got a couple of other ideas. So just out of a little garage, we started, you know, getting a drill press, making a few pedals a week. And it just started to to grow from there. Wow. That's truly incredible. Um, to the listeners out there, uh, we were talking earlier and I, I started playing drums myself at 12 years old. And I'm actually looking across the room right now and I see my my DW acrylic snare and I, I have a DW5000 pedal. So it's truly revolutionary um, kind of hearing that evolution. I'm curious then, uh, when did the hoops and the, not the, exactly the hoops, but when did the shells come into play and then the DW drums themselves? Well, the, when we purchased the company, they were making drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we inherited some shells yep. that, that we then finished into product. But uh, the actual business model, if you will, was based around the pedals and then growing the hardware. Yeah. And then, and I always separated the two on paper from an accounting standpoint in my mind too. Someday we might be a drum company, but right now we're a hardware company. Yeah. So, uh, so we we took a look at you know obviously the key ingredient for shells is shells. Mm. So we found a furniture manufacturer back east, Keller Wood Products, that was making cylinders mainly for displays, uh, for for clothing stores, if you wanted to have a, a display that was a cylinder, or a huge conference table that has a huge, two big cylinders underneath of a 40-foot table. Mm-hmm. They made these huge cylinders, uh, which were round, and yeah. they made some that were about the size of a drum shell. So we just went to them and said, hey, um, what would it take? And they were starting to look at that industry because there was really no custom small companies in those days. It was all dominated by the majors. Yeah. Um, but there was a there was a company that made Gret shells and uh, Jasper wood products, mm-hmm. um, but they only made a certain type of a shell, and that didn't work for us. They they didn't have machines that would make a, an all maple shell. They had to use a softer material, a gum wood, mm. which was became part of the unique Gretsch sound, which we still we still make today which is we'll get into that later yeah but uh, but for the dw shells we went to them we wanted an all maple shell so they would supply us with the cylinders and then we had all of the you know built the knowledge and then i did all the basically finishing and, and assembly of it until at one point we just said hey if we're going to have complete control of every step of the manufacturing process mm-hmm. we got to make our own drum shells but that was that was, you know, in the in the early '90s, pretty much. Yep. Uh, before we, it was a big capital expenditure, obviously at that point too, and it 
So it, we did drums, I would say, as a hobby in the 80s. Yeah. We would make a couple of drum kits a month. They would go to studio guys. We had maybe by mid-80s, we had a handful, five or six stores who store owners were friends of mine. They were all drummers. I mean, think back in those days, as a manufacturer, you were selling to a couple of hundred pro drum shops mm. were drummers that went into the, you know, to open up a drum shop. So yeah. uh, you weren't, I, I never felt like you could sell something to a drummer. Mm. Uh, I felt like you could just fill a need, yeah. but we needed somebody to communicate the message between what we were building what we thought was good for the end user, the drummer, and that was the drum shop. They would get mm. this equipment in. They would be as excited to show somebody the new spring we put on the pedal or the new universal or check out the DW pedal uh, mm. as we hoped the end user was when he when he bought it. So yeah. our supply chain kind of became, we would invent things that would be brought to me or that I would have an idea would fill a need. That was that was not being filled by the major big companies because mm. we had to do something different. Yeah, I mean, you're in your garage and you're going up against Yamaha. I mean, <laughs> it's like you're never going to out money them. Yeah, and it's going to be more expensive. So you just but that's not also a big part of their business. So you know you can kind of like slide under the door, which is what we did with the pedals. Mm. Uh, and that was I think both Pearl Tama and Yamaha had no idea in the early days. By that I mean the early '80s, how many pedals we were selling, and that that gave us the foundation to spend some money to get into drums. So mm. we would, from a business standpoint, rob from Peter to pay Paul, if you will. The, the hardware would make a little money; we'd throw it into the drums. Yeah, the drums aren't making any money, but it's fun to make a few drum sets. And eventually, could we become a full-line drum company? Mm. You know, and that was a question in my mind because. We were making a pedal that was selling for $119, mm. $129 compared to an $89 or a $79 pedal from our competition. Mm. Um, and we were selling them successfully. So it wasn't that much more for somebody to spend. It was a lot of money back in the 80s, yeah. but it wasn't that much more for somebody to spend for the for the fact that it was immediately making it easy for the drummer to do what he was doing. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it was, it was interesting for me. It was kind of like, I, I, I love giving a drum lesson uh, that's why I'm, you know, so excited about Drum Channel, part of my future now, uh, as I continue with that. But Amazing. because you can immediately get a response from somebody. Yeah. But another way you can, which I never thought about when I was teaching, is if you make a product and say, "Hey, try this," and the guy go, "Whoa, that makes it now. I, it makes it so much easier." Yeah. You kind of like gave a guy a lesson in a way because you know you're you're expanding the horizons of what he could do. Mm. And then when you give him a lesson. He can see that the 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 thing between him and the sound that he's creating is not getting in the way. Yeah. So then, so if you have a good pedal and you're not able to play what you're trying to play, it's you got no cop out. You just got to practice more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. If the pedal's not if the pedal's not working. It doesn't make any difference how good you're going. You're going to be struggling a little bit to get out what you, what you want to get out. So for sure. So in the early '80s, we and in the mid '80s, we started making drums and we were getting them to five or six music stores. They would bring in one drum set mm. and it was a matter of trying it. We were like $2,000, which was very expensive in those days compared to 1500, 1600, 1900, you know, the top end of our competitors line. Mm. So, but we had some of the closet drummers, if you will, who all were endorsing other companies, but would have a DW kit, you know, for certain sounds that they would want. They would all have a Gretsch kit for certain sessions they would be doing, even though they'd be endorsing other companies because um, their life was in the studio. So it wasn't yeah. like what a thousand people saw if you're in an arena. It's like, what did the microphone hear? Yeah. And for us, uh, the microphone was probably our biggest artist relations person, if you will. Yeah. Uh, because rather than going and asking somebody if they want to play the drums or try them, just put them in a studio where an engineer is miking them. And it's like, hey, we're going to do some tracks on this session next week. Uh, can you guys come over and do it, talking to a drummer? Yeah. And they show up and say, well, I don't have to bring your drums. I have a drum kit here you can use. So then I get a call. Hey, I didn't know you guys made drums. I just did a session at Ocean Way, and I played on a DW drum set. Are you guys making drums? Said, yeah, we are, but it's not really serious part of what we're doing yet. But well, we kind of filled the underground pipeline. And then some of these guys started coming on board. Mm. Uh, one of our first early 
artist was Danny Seraphine. Wow. Um, in terms of a, of a of a crossover artist, somebody that was known for being in a really big popular band. Mm. We had some great drummers with Larry London. We had great drummers who were playing in the studios mm. and playing, you know, with bands that were starting to use DW drums. John Ferraro. I mean, these these were touring drummers who would go out with Barry Manlow and big artists. Yeah. But to be actually a member of a band who was switching from a big company coming to DW, mm. Danny was kind of like that was like whoa. So he had, he left a major company to come to DW, this little company yeah. that is is making drums. They must be a drum company. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. I thought they made pedals, pedals and hardware. So and then uh, uh, that was in the 80s uh, and the later 80s, we started doing a little bit more with the drums. Um, and then we started looking at like, how do we actually make the leap from going to be a hardware company to a drum company? Yeah. We've always kept the two separate to this day in our minds and in, 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 in our in the way we not only market the product, but the way we look at manufacturing. Yeah. We have... We have a whole team that works on pedals and hardware. We have a whole team that works on drums. Um, mm -hmm. So we can build, and now we're getting into all these other things with electronics. And that's another whole world we'll touch on here at the end. Yeah. But, but the, uh, and Latin percussion instruments. And so the goal was in 1990 to go to the NAM show, which was our big trade show back in those days. Yep. Um, it's, it's, it's an industry show where all the manufacturers show their products once a year to everybody to explain that to your viewers. Yep. But so the, uh, the the goal was to go to the 1990 NAM show with a catalog, and the decision was, I've got a 12 year old white Ford van that's falling apart, so that we use to deliver products, and I use to take the kids to school, <laughs> uh, and and it was thirty thousand for a brand new one, and it was thirty thousand for a drum catalog. So we we sat down and said, look, let's do the drum catalog go there and with a real catalog just like Tama Pearl and Yamaha and Ludwig and you know we're going to look like a drum company I mean this is 30,000 for a catalog was like astronomical amount of money for a little small company so you're kind of gambling the farm at that point but yeah but I wanted to if you're going to do it you know do it do it right so we uh, we went there and this part of the story is somewhat documented but uh, I I had told Chris, my son, who was in sales at that point, mm -hmm. that and and uh, John DeChristopher, I think, was with us that then those years too in sales. I just said, look, the goal is for us to get 15 kits out into the world, one at each of our top 15 dealers. So that would just say, hey, we've primed the pump. Let's see if anybody will spend three thousand dollars on a DW drum set. Yeah, you know, so and because they got a First, they got. Do they know that they're really great drums? Do they, you know, what's what's the stepping stones? Um, so we went to the January show, and it was a three-day show in those days. And at the end of the first day, Chris, my son, said, "I got to get together with you, Dad, and and the other guys here, and, and let's John Good." So I'm immediately going into. I'm going to pump everybody up, and it's going to be okay. You know, it's just like, look, you know, we gave it our best shot. And if we can get maybe two or three out there, maybe 15 was too much, you know, yeah. little by little, it'll kind of grow. So I was, I was going to, in the damage control mode or, you know, build everybody's morale back up. <laughs> so he got us together and I said, look, it's going to be okay. He said, no, dad, that's not the problem. He said, we've sold 40 drum sets on the first day of the show. Wow. We could make five a month, maybe, <laughs> and not, not legally back in those days. I mean, we didn't have an official spray booth. We were just doing it kind of as a hobby. Yeah. So that was another huge business lesson, which I you know, hadn't prepared for. We had built a credibility and a, and a relationship with drummers and, and a quality standard based on the pedal. Mm. So they bought a DW product, cymbal stand, something that was something that had something different about it because i would never just do another song let's not make a simple stand unless we can make one that has better features yeah. adjustable filter thicker tubing that doesn't crush i mean things that makes it yeah it's going to be more expensive than everybody else's but you're going to buy one and you're going to have it for the rest of your life so yeah the thought was like we had we had done this and built this relationship i figured when we started with a drum set going from a pedal and hardware 
to a $3,000 item, I would have to go through a 10-year period of building that all over again, like I did through the 80s with hardware, but not true. They Once the store saw that we had a DW drum set, the, the, the assumption was these guys make great stuff. Yeah. So this is going to be a great drum set. And so I'll, yeah, I'll take a couple of them. So literally took us over a year to fill those orders. We didn't take any more. And that was in 1990. And we moved from our little space in Newbury Park, which is an area here in uh, Southern California, just mm -hmm. north of, of the airport of, of the main area where I grew up about 20 minutes uh -huh. uh, and into a 30,000 square foot building that allowed us to start getting into buying machinery and equipment that it takes to, you know, to make drums. Mm -hmm. And the, from an artist standpoint, the going back to deciding to go to that show with the catalog, yeah, the, the biggest driving factor for me was, yes, we had made pedals that all drummers were using. Mm. We had made a few drum sets a month that only kind of aficionado guys were using. They were they were they were buying it because they wanted the particular sound that they were getting out of a DW kit and resonance. Yeah, uh, that wasn't that was different because our shell construction, our manufacturing standards were different than the competition. Mm -hmm. But but. Uh, but those, at that point, you're selling to the the astute, if you will, the engineers, the recording drummers. Yeah. Um, how do you get that message across to the average drummer uh, who is looking to buy a drum set or wants to get something that's good, but would associate that with quality? And that's that was the relationship when Tommy Lee came on board. Oh wow. Uh, Tommy was, I mean, Motley Crue was huge. They had a huge fan base. And uh, Tommy's an excellent drummer. I've always said he's underrated. Unfortunately, his his stardom sometimes supersedes his musicality. But yeah, uh, if you were to take that all away, we'd still be talking about him as a as a great rock drummer. Exactly. So he came out in the late '80s uh, and '87, uh, I think it was. And uh, we happened to have a drum set waiting for somebody to come and pick it up. Mm -hmm. So he sat down and started playing, and he played it for a couple of hours. And uh, and was blown away at the sound. And I just, to me, it's like, this is the way we've been making drums for several years, but yeah, was 19 or 20. He grew up on an imported drum line. So he was a drum set that was made offshore. Yeah. So he, used to, he was like, this is the way drums sound. And then he sat down behind the DW kit and was like, well, I didn't know they could sound, you know, like this. So open. And they were about to do the Dr. Feelgood album. Uh, and wow. that was, Done, I believe, in Canada, and it was some type of ambient miking. But he just said, "I've got to have this drum set to make that album." Uh, and I didn't bring up endorsements or anything because because we we were barely wasn't paying myself. We were barely paying our our in our our employees, yeah. and uh, have never had the philosophy of paying artists. So, and I know he had a business relationship with the company that he was with through his management. So, yeah. So, long story short, basically. Uh, we made the drum set for him. He used it on that record. Nobody knew that it was ours except a few inside people, which was fine. I was just happy to help out a guy. And if you want to use it and, and, and he bought it by the way, and I still have the a copy of the check. Wow. Obviously I cashed it cause I needed the money, but <laughs> he 1900 bucks. He said, look, I know you guys, you know, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Of course yeah, it was easy for him to do. They were at the top of the heat back Amazing. in those days uh, and still doing well today. So so he bought the kit, he used it. And so now he had his kit kind of, you know, in the background that he would use from time to time. Mm. And then uh, longer story short, he became an official artist several years after that, a couple of years after that. But that that gave me the momentum to say, hey, all these studio drummers, these working uh, gigging drummers, mm. these touring drummers, they have DW drums. Um, Tommy Lee with Motley Crue, wow. we put our foot into that whole other arena. Is playing DW. Well, that this is like whoa. It's crazy. He left a major drum company and he's playing DW. These guys, they must. And 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 I felt good because a lot of people ended up buying DW drums who didn't understand the quality they were getting, but it was cool to have a DW kit. Yeah. And as they get better, they'll realize, hey, I've really got something that's different than than other options that I would have out there. So amazing. That kind of gets us through the process of how I went from taking lessons to teaching to 
starting with the hardware to wow. getting in the drums. So it's an amazing journey. I think that's amazing uh, how Tommy Lee kind of brought that into the studio, um, especially at that selfless purchasing level, which it's hard to come across today. I'm curious, what did this kind of relationship with Tommy Lee mean for the future of DW and how your outlook as founder uh, was seeing endorsement deals for the future of DW as well? Well, I, I mean, I think from the beginning, we always looked at uh, us making a product uh, that was a true musical instrument and then people who would be gravitating towards it and would want to play it, we would want to support. Mm. Um, I, I mentioned a little earlier that our biggest artist relations people were microphones. Yep. Uh, and so it was a matter of just having people hear what we were doing and We've always subscribed to Jonas and I are particularly adamant about this that you know, we and within the company we're not saying we're the best, but that's something that's up to the drummers to say about us if that's the way that they feel. Mm. We do the best we can to provide them, you know, what we think is something new new and unique and something that would improve the quality of their lives. Mm. Tommy's Tommy's coming on board simply took us into uh another genre of music, if you will, mm. uh, and to popular rock bands of the day. And so it opened up the door to being, you know, cool to play DW and, yeah. and, a, and a nice thing to do as a, and in addition to having something that's a real high-end top quality instrument, you know. Mm. Uh, and, and our endorsement policies through the years have always been to, uh, to promote as much as we can, the artists that are playing our drums. Mm -hmm. um, work on educational programs when we can do clinics, which of course in recent years has been all on the back burner yeah. with, the, with the world situation. But um, but in, in doing that, and with my love of education, uh, as DW had grown, all the artists that we had uh, are such a resource of information. Some of them are the best teachers of all time mm. uh, and, and obviously the best players of all time. Um, so we, I was pushing more education content within the arena of DW manufacturing, mm. but it almost got to the point to where it's two different business models. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a drum company, you want to do as much education as you can, putting flyers out there as much as anything, educating people about what the products are that you have and what they're, how, how they would improve the quality of a drummer's life. And that's. That's, that was important to us at the beginning because we were educating people as to why we produce things that we produce. Yeah. Double pedal is, you know, the, that was that was probably the main item that put us in business yeah. from an accounting standpoint. I mean, I, when when we when I made our first single pedal in 1976, um, probably the day after we made it out of the first tooling dies and molds we got, I got a call from Hank Belson, Louie Belson's brother. And he said, hey, Louie wants to try out one of those pedals. You're making that Campco pedal. It's the DW one now. I said, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> so he drove to Gardena where we were in this little garage and took one. And I get a call from Louie Belson the next day, who I'd only casually known, but never talked to him on the phone. Yep. And he said, Juan, this is the best pedal I've ever used. Uh, and so to, at that point, I knew I was a success. Mm. Um, Fast forwarding 10 years later, when we started making drums uh, and we started getting into the double pedal, was the first time our accountant thought we were a success because we were constantly having to borrow money and stair step from one, you know, one, you know, basically you have roadblocks as any company grows, yep. financing and financing your, your growth, which is a good problem to have, or financing through hard times, which is a problem you have to go through also. But yep. so I would. I was able to do that through friends and family and refinancing my house multiple times. But, uh, but as, as, as the company grew and we were able to take advantage of looking at the, the artists that we have, how we could support them beyond just giving them products, mm. it was like, I, I've got to start something you know separate that would be an educational platform, which yep. is when I started drum channel as a completely separate business mm. uh, and got me back into teaching, which is, you know, one of my original labors of love without doing it one-on-one, -on -one, which I do some a little bit still because I'm um, documenting some of the ways I was taught 
yep. by Uber, by Nick Ceroli. Yeah. So that's wow. that kind of takes our takes my relationship with our artists and puts it in another arena, if you will. Mm. Incredible. I, I would like to kind of get into the evolution of Drum Channel and what you envisioned with the future of that. Taking uh, some of your teaching days in person, I know Drum Channel has expanded into multiple clinics, online digital learning uh, for students. What has that evolution looked like from Drum Channel and what did you envision from uh, launch? Uh, well, in initially became kind of a, a family joke. It would be like, I'd be talking about wanting to do more with education. At the same time, we were coming out with a lot of new products and like, how can a drum company add more into education? Mm. And I talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And finally, my son got together and just said, look, you know, do you want to wait until you're 120 to do this? Or do you want to like, you know, why don't you just do it now? Because the company is going well. This was like uh, 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I said, okay, I'm going to start separating part of my time uh, working with the company. I stay on the R&D side. Fortunately, my son, Chris, loves the business side of the business uh, and has taken over the CEO responsibilities. My daughter, Carrie, does the intellectual property. So wow. basically the two, two of the key ingredients in having a successful company is one, overseeing what you do have, uh, your intellectual property. By that, I mean patented products and new products that we're innovating uh, so that we're competitive all the time. And then running the business, which has to do with making drums partially, but a lot of it is all of the standards and controls and everything you have to comply with in order to be a, a manufacturing company yep. in California, which there's you know there's a huge list of things that you have to do. So, so he was in running the business and growing the business, watching the pennies. I continued into the R&D side of it, which I do now with our R&D team. Mm. And that you gotta look at what got you where you are at what I was best at, you know, I think one thing I was good at was knowing what I wasn't good at. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, I got to hire somebody who is good at doing what that is, that I'm not that great. I'm a horrible salesperson. So <laughs> we would need to have good salespeople. So, so I, uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to start an educational website. Uh, and I, what I wanted to do was have a vault of information from some of the best teachers in the world. And, and the internet was starting at that point. YouTube was starting at that point. We're talking about 15 years ago when I, I started putting this together. Mm -hmm. And it was, it has been through the years, pretty much a labor of love. I've financed it personally. Uh, wow. And we're at a point now where we're going to take it, you know, kind of to the next level, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, have a, a marketing team involved, uh, have more people that I'll be working with that will not only message the idea of what we have, but I, I, as strange as it sounds, you're, you're teaching, I was teaching a student, you know, back in the day when I'd have you start on a pad, then you'd get a snare drum, then you get, but right yeah. now there's the instant gratification. First thing you want to do is play a rock beat. Yep. You know, so there's a different, a different mentality set of the consumer. Yep. Beyond even taking drum lessons, it's understanding that taking drum lessons is a good thing. You yep. know, I'm a huge advocate of private instruction. Uh, I haven't met a drummer who didn't think he would have been better off if he had the opportunity or if that opportunity wasn't part of what changed his whole career and his outlook mm. you know, and made him the drummer that he is today. So, yeah. so I, I, and it's, it's, I can belabor this point way too long, but, uh, no. if you look at what we're doing as, as drummers, uh, and this is what we have as the mission of Drum Channel. It's how you play what you play and why you play it. Yeah. And what what's missed by a lot of young drummers today is learning how to play. They immediately want to see somebody copy what somebody is doing. So you're seeing what somebody is doing, you're copying what they're doing mm. without really learning how they learn to do that in the first place. Mm. Uh, the difference being, this was the, this is one of the milestones of the, of the website. There's... What Freddie Gruber taught, what Murray Spivak taught, all these great young drummers today, David Garibaldi, Van Caliuta, I mean, they studied with these guys. Mm. They weren't sitting at a drum set learning a rock beat. Yeah. They were learning how their, and this is, the, this is the connection that those teachers used, how their mind would tell their hands what to do. And mm. that's, what, uh, that's what 
Freddie would say, that's what Murray Spivak would say, I'm not teaching you how to play drums. I'm teaching your mind to tell what your hands, what they should do. Because mm. a stick is a natural extension of your hand. The stick mm. isn't going to play something. Yeah. You're, you're not going to produce something by knowing that you're going to, I want to hit this drum three times in a row, and then I want to hit that drum twice. Mm. You know, uh, you can copy somebody, and you can say, okay, he hit it three times, and he hit it twice. But it's like, yeah, you're, you want to hear a certain sound, and you want to realize that in order to do that, you've got to raise your forearm up. You've got to come around. Maybe it'll be the molar method you'd be using for that. Maybe you should open your fingers up and close them. Yep. Why do these guys sound so good? And I don't sound quite as good. I'm playing the same beat, but it, you know, how come he got the gig and I didn't get the gig? Yeah. Uh, what would it better for him? Why does it feel better when he's playing it than what I'm playing it? And there's so many places where you can learn what to play. Mm. And I'm an advocate of all of them. Yep. Um, I, I, I don't know a drummer who wouldn't hear another drummer that he might pick something up from. Mm. Uh, uh, Alex, uh, Gonzalez, uh, yeah, so is, is that a, a going back from the gig at night uh, with Mana, and here's a Holiday Inn band playing at a wedding, and the drummer does something that like he'd never done before. So he goes over and at the end and show me how you did that. You know, I mean, you can anytime you're seeing another drummer play, you can learn something for sure. So all the greatest drummers in the world, watch them play, and you will learn from them. But wow, there's, there's if if you're Needing a drum lesson every day is probably something missing because if you're getting a good drum lesson, you should have enough to practice for two weeks yeah. before you come back and see if you did a good job at it and then take it to the next level. So that's learning how to play. So for sure. we've documented the, the Chad Wackerman has a course documenting the way he learned, the way David learned Garibaldi, the way all of his brothers learned. Several of the greatest drummers in town today learned mm. how to play by going through this step-by-step method mm. every two weeks and he had to practice two hours a day so there's yeah. not there's no if, if it's if you're going to get the end result you're going to have to put the put the time in for sure but, but, the, but the information is there and then we have kind of our our what we call our artist in residence on drum channel is chad thomas lang who will take your rudiments and your technique to another level depending on how much time you have to practice yeah. and, and Watching him play is educational, but it's almost just as entertaining because he exactly. does something just like, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. Greg Bissonette, really down to earth with grooves, beats, and fills. Greg mm. is Mr. Vocabulary. So if you're ever in a situation, the guy turns around and says, hey, look, we're going to play this or we're going to play that or let's let's do this. You're going to have a basic understanding of how to play all those beats. Yep. And then that's learning how your body works to play something, mm-hmm. learning what you want to play. And then Terry has a great course, as do other musicians on the site, um, on how to learn to play that musically. In other words, why why did I choose to play that, mm. or more importantly, not play that at that particular point of the song? Yeah. And therein lies the other missing link. So many drummers today are playing at home, which is great, and copying people, which is great. But you don't want to miss out on the experience of having a conversation like we are which yeah. is what you do when you're with a band. That's the really the fulfilling part. Absolutely. So, so Drum Channel kind of started out as a, as a vault of information uh, where I was just building up from all these great teachers that I knew uh, and a course that I'm putting up now that I've been on my bucket list, which is the way Freddie Grouper broke down Buddy Rich's technique, mm. so that if anybody really wants to get inside of the mechanics of how your body works, and, and work on that. That's you know we, we've got the information there for them. Wow! Uh, if you want to become a hobbyist amateur drummer, it's the best thing you could possibly do in your mm-hmm. life. In my mind, it helps so many other areas. Yeah. So then you can come on and learn just to play a basic rock beat. Yeah. Uh, and and I can get you playing drums by tapping on your feet and your hands and counting one and two and together right together right. In five minutes, you'll be able to play Billy Jean. Amazing. But, uh, so just to have fun doing it, which is another, you know, another area. So I don't look at us competing with anybody. Um, Drum Hill gives you an opportunity to see a whole bunch of drummers doing what they're doing. Yeah. YouTube is free. It gives you a whole bunch of opportunity to see drummers doing what you're doing. The Academy section of, section of Drum Channel is like going to school. You know, yeah. It takes practice, patience, perseverance. You know, we're not giving you selling you a, a, a value or selling you anything. There again, I'm a horrible salesman. So <laughs> the whole idea is we have information. And I, I, 
I can't imagine me growing up or any drummer who would have an opportunity to study with Greg or Terry or Thomas mm. and, and take an hour lesson with them. And you would go like, well, okay, but like, are you going to be running a special next month? <laughs> Gee, I'll spend the extra 20 bucks. If I get what, what I'm going to get out of this is 10 times more than whatever I'm putting into it. In yeah. The first one. So, so, and you know, if you're trying to spend the least amount of money possible to learn how to play drums and you're in that financial situation, God bless you. Do whatever you can in order to get there. But yeah. if you want to make an investment in your career, you know, take some private lessons in conjunction with Drum Channel. You're mm. going to learn the fastest and get the most out of anything that you would be you'd be doing. So yeah. So we're we're there's the academy section of Drum Channel, and then there's the entertainment side. Guys started coming out doing lessons, and uh, it's like, hey, I want to have a can I play along with a bass player? So what if my you know Chad Smith's like I have a band I play with when I'm in town. What if I bring them out and do something? So yeah. obviously more fun for the drummer to be playing in a band than giving a lesson. These guys who are not teachers per se, for sure. they just want to show you what they're doing. Um, so we just started saying, yeah, let's do that. And let's sit down and talk too. We'll have round table discussions, mm. uh, which I continue to do what we call Lombardi Live. Every Tuesday at five, I do an interview uh, wow. uh, with drummers and, and I've, and we do roundtable interviews, too. I mean, when you got Neil Peart and Jim Keltner and Charlie Watts and Chad Smith and mm. these great drummers sitting around talking, I just like growing up, I would rush behind the stage when they finished playing a set to see if I could get into a two minute conversation or yeah. but to be a fly on the wall and hear these guys just sitting around talking about their careers and how they did what they did and why they played it. And it's it's another great way to learn. I think the entertainment section of Drum Channel almost is as good of an educational outlet as the actual lessons. Yeah. Because you can learn how to do it, but when you get these guys talk about, how do you think you got the gig? You know, Chad Smith, 60 people or 40 people auditioned for the Chili Peppers, you got the gig. What do you think you did different? You, you certainly Amazing. didn't fit the bill looks-wise, because these were like, you know, long hair, hippie <laughs> guys auditioning for drummer, and there's a guy from the Midwest is flying in with his, with his hey dude haircut. Yeah. So, but he did something that turned them on. Uh, and that's that's how, how you present yourself if you're going to try and make a living at it. Mm. Right now, you've got to expand your horizons. Yeah. Uh, you need to be a good drummer. You need to be able to record. You need to be able to have your home studio. And we've seen growing over the last 10 years the inevitability of electronics, not necessarily from the standpoint of an electronic drum set per se, although that is finding its niche more than it ever has before. Yeah. It became popular with disco, and it was kind of like you needed drums that didn't sound like drums. Yeah. Uh, and that was great until you got to the point to where uh, I, one of our artists auditioned, and it was like he had all of his electronic drums, and he was playing everything. And the leader came up after the audition and said, that was great. He said, but all we need now is, is to add a drummer because, like, <laughs> you completely left the, the, the realm of what the drums were doing to what my band wanted. I wanted to have all this part of it, but I didn't want you just to do that. I wanted you to be the drummer and add this in. Wow. And, that, and, and now I think, you know, electronics from the standpoint of triggering backing tracks, yeah. uh, setting up song lists, triggering, you know, video. Um, if you have the ability to do that, at the same time you're filling the capacity of the drummer and the drum in the band, you're going to be more employable, if you will. Yeah. So we started uh, in, in my manufacturing and educational hat on, we started uh, developing an electronics you know, e-drum area of DW to get into electronic drums. Incredible. Uh, and we've been working on that for the last three or four years um, and uh, are going to be launching soon our DW e-drum set, which we debuted at our 50th anniversary, wow. which was... 50th anniversary last year congratulations um, and, and and again no reason to do that if we're not going to do something different and better and more creative yeah so uh and what was that you know to me as the drummers had on well i would take an electronic drum set to the gig if i needed to produce those sounds but it's much harder to carry i've got all mm -hmm. the cabling i've got the amplifier i'm just going to take my acoustic kit they seem to be fine with that too so can we get rid of all the cabling and the wires? To me, that would be a game changer if I was going to look at getting an electronic drum set and adding it into my arsenal. And sure. we were able to do that. So 
Incredible. So basically, the, 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 I don't know if you've seen our demo on, on our DWE drums. I need to check it out. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, it's online. It, it, you can go to dwdrums.com and, and I wow. believe it's up there. But we, we showed it at our 50th anniversary. Uh, so there's no wires. It's wireless and wow. there's no latency issues. It's just as fast as if you had it had everything with, with cables. So That's incredible. So, so for DW, I know what your next question is going to be. So I'll let you ask it, though. It probably has something to do with Roland. Yeah, yeah, I heard about the acquisition uh, recently. Um, so what led to that? Was it this evolutionary, revolutionary product? Did they Roland see that, and that's what created the acquisition? Or yeah, how did that come about recently? Uh, yeah, very. You, you hit the nail right on the head, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, you know, we we kept, and I'm guilty of this too, as are the other team members at DW. You you, you invent something and you get ready to come out with it. It's like. Oh, but if we did this, it could be a little bit better. Well, let's wait a little bit. Oh, if we did this, it'd be a little bit. Oh, let's wait a little bit. You know, eventually in the electronic realm, there's always going to be improvements because the world is going to be changing all the time and you're going to have new opportunities yeah. uh, in terms of how you're designing things and what you're coming up with based a lot on the computer industry and how we can use in our music world what they're developing. Mm. Uh, so we, we got the electronic drum set to a point where other rumors had gotten out and Roland was very interested in what we were doing. So we just said, Hey, we're going to be coming out with it shortly. It's done. It's patented technology. Let's have them up and show them what we're doing. Hmm. And that came from any type of a, of, uh, of a, a business relationship, maybe working on licensing certain of our proprietary content to them to like, what if we were to become part of the Roland brands, become hmm. under the umbrella of Roland and, as a manufacturing company in the United States, especially in California, yeah. especially making, you know, from the ground up, making wooden cylinders and turning them into musical instruments, um, your cost is very high, your margins are very low. Yeah. So, so if there's economy hiccups, which we've lived through in the past, uh, those hiccups become even bigger as your numbers become bigger mm. and as hiccups become bigger. So as we're looking at kind of a three-pronged situation, you know, going through, you know, what might be some hard times in the economy. At the same time, we want to launch a whole new, not just another product, a whole new division of DW, DW Electronics. Yeah. It's a whole, think of it as a whole new company. Uh -huh. We make hardware, we make drums, we make DWE drums. So we want, if we were going to, if we were going to, what we had said during the time we were developing it, people wanted to know what we were doing. And yeah. Chris came up with the best line. He said, "Well, what we're doing is not something to be number two. We're we're do, if we're going to do this, we're going to we're going to we're going to come out with something that's going to be just absolutely killer." For sure. And as we were, as we were developing that with that technology, uh, and looking at where, from an educational standpoint, a drummer's life was, mm. where he needs to broaden his horizons and incorporate everything that he would need from a home studio standpoint to recording gear to. Uh, to do just triggering pads mm. that it would have taken us years to build a whole library of what Roland has built over 50 years. Yeah. They've been in business for 50 years also. Yeah. So, uh, so that was, that was like, well, Hey, if we were to merge with them or we were to fall under their umbrella, uh, they're a, a very family oriented company. Mm. It was actually, you know, family owned for many, many years until the founder passed away recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, and their their goal is to improve the music industry and provide for the drummer the best possible solution. So mm -hmm. for me, it was like you wouldn't want Roland is providing their product. DW is providing their product. We're each going to be having certain features that we don't want the other to have. Yeah. That makes ours better than theirs. So it's like, well, I got this one, but it's not quite as good. But I like what this one to like if we came together, you would get the best of both of what we both have. Yeah, we would have we would be able to have their complete e-drum team uh, in Japan working with us on products we're developing. We would be helping them develop products they're developing. Wow. And we have our DW Electronics, you know, division. They still keep doing everything they're doing, you know, with Roland. So the merger came together from the standpoint of technology was important. The, the idea of uh, what our brands brought to each other was important, but the third thing that kind of clinched the deal for me mm -hmm. is education. Yeah, they are very, very interested in education, uh, and they're huge fans of Drum Channel, mm. and they want to take 
the drumming community, young drummers out there especially, whether you want to make a career out of it or not, and work with me to educate the world on how you can blend on a hybrid drum set standpoint, add electronics to your drum set, but blend into your arsenal of gear you need to use, how you'd be able to be proficient at being an engineer, yeah. uh, recording yourself, everything that you need to do, marketing yourself, yep. Facebook, YouTube. Um, so they've got some really, wow. they have new streaming gear that they're coming out with that probably I'm not supposed to talk about, but I'll just <laughs> say there's some new things coming out with that's going to be really cool that everybody's going to want to have. Amazing. Wow, that, that's really exciting. Um, what I'm really fascinated about and really drawn to is the drum community and how tight it is and the business model that you've created from educational aspect, creating a product, creating um, an online educational piece. I used to watch Drum Channel when I was in study hall in high school and get inspired by the endorsers from DW. I would want to play DW drums. So you really created this business model of a community, which I think is really a big reason and result of the success of DW and Drum Channel today. A piece that we like to wrap up the episode with is if you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, something you've learned or regret along the way, uh, what would you say that would be? Well, you know, I I, I was in a meeting at one point. Um, I think there was an award that was being given for Entrepreneur of the Year Award that uh, that was put out, and our name got thrown into the bundle. This was in the in the late '80s, and mm. so. Uh, somebody said, you're an entrepreneur. And I, I had never been called an entrepreneur really before. So my, my first thought was, let's see. So an entrepreneur, I guess that's somebody that works 60 hours a week with no overtime and sometimes no pay. Cause that, <laughs> I guess I just look back at what it took to grow the company and get us to the point to where we were at. But yeah. I appreciated the compliment. And, and, and I think, you know, for young entrepreneurs, uh, first define in your mind what that means. If what you want to do, is create something, solve a problem, and improve the quality of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. So uh, you don't become an entrepreneur because you want to make a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you can be entrepreneurial and you can have great success, which can have financial success also. But you want to find a passion of what you what you feel really good about and what you feel you are good about. Yeah. Uh, something that you have knowledge about. I felt I knew the drumming community better than our competition did at the time. Uh, they were big marketing firms, manufacturing companies. Uh, they had another mission that was different than my mission. Mm. Um, they, they, they both have some of the same goals. They needed to make money. They wanted to make money. They wanted to dominate the American drum industry. I needed to survive. So I needed to have a company that was financially successful. Yeah. But our goal was to improve the quality of the life of the drummer both from education we're doing with drum channel now, mm -hmm. which is again, a c separate company. You don't have to play DW to be on drum channel. In fact, many of our top lessons are done with artists who are sponsoring other drum brands. Mm -hmm. It's all about what information do you have that I feel is important for the community to want to know. So there's, and you hear this sometimes, you know, you want to follow your passion, but you want to, you want to find out what you're passionate about that you feel you have some uniqueness to offer mm. and, and then never say no, because mm -hmm. there's going to be naysayers. I mean, I started in 1979. I went to the bank to borrow $3,000 in 1980. Interest rates were 18, 19%. Wow. Uh, the three American drum companies, Tama, I mean, Ludwig Schlinger and Rogers had all been sold to other companies. Mm -hmm. uh, we were being dominated by labor rates in Taiwan from Tama Pearl and Yamaha at a dollar or less an hour. Mm. Ludwig was at $7 an hour. So, I mean, it was just like, there was no way the American companies could continue to compete. Mm. I even saw that coming and I was, I, I was in band when I was supposed to be in some business class, I'm sure in school. But I didn't, <laughs> I, I just, as a, as an armchair referee, I could see that there was problems out there. So yeah. if you, if you see, you can solve a problem and you have, either an invention that's patentable or just an inventive idea for a company, um, you can be successful at it. But mm. you have to have same things we talk about on Drum Channel. Actually, I haven't thought about this before, but our mantra is patience, practice, and perseverance. Mm. I think, you know, that's the that's the key to being a successful entrepreneur. You have to have patience to see, be at the right place at the right time. Uh, you got to be passionate about what you're doing. 
and don't let people who said, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to do this, Don, or I don't think, you know, you're, this, this isn't going to work out, or how are you going to be able to survive and do this? Mm -hmm. I'm just, I look back and say, well, because the first pedal I made, Louis Belson said was a great pedal. So yeah. in my, in my lack of a business acumen, I just said, if I can get enough people to try this thing out, <laughs> if he thinks it's good, there's going to be a lot of people that will think it's good. Yeah. And that was the same, same mantra through, through, through DW's success also. And uh, there was a, a pivotal moment, which I only told once before, actually, mm. uh, that stuck with me throughout my life, which had to do in the early days when I said I got into baseball. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, in Little League and I was about eight years old. And you would normally play in the minor league if you were seven, eight, nine. If you were, I think, nine, 10, 11, 12, you'd play in the major league teams. Big difference between the two teams. Yeah, so, sure. um, I fortunately had an older brother who played with me a lot. So I got pretty good. So my dream was like, could I do the, you know, what they, what we would call an audition today, but you would call tryouts in baseball. Mm -hmm. Would I do it and possibly get picked to be on a major league team? So I was at third base, ground ball, right through my legs. The worst thing that can possibly happen. Uh, Didn't I mean, that's just like, you know, screw up 101. So I just yeah. figure you know, my chances are you're over with at this point. As soon as it went through my legs, I turned around to run after it and everybody yelled, no, there's somebody back there, catch it. Let me hit you another <laughs> one. Let me hit you another one. So I get a call a couple of nights later and my this is you, everything's on the phone, by the way, in those days. And yeah. You get telegrams, you know, with no internet or cell phones. So <laughs> home phone rings. My mom says something. I get on the phone. It's the manager of the Major League Braves. He says, I picked you to be on my team. Uh, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe that. I said, uh, I thought I thought I was really so bad when the ball went through my legs. And he said, no, that's why I picked you. Wow. Because as soon as it went through your legs, you turned around to run after it and fix the problem. You didn't get angry. You didn't waste any time, you know, saying, you know, I just screwed up really bad. He said, and that's the attitude I want of my players. So wow. I carried that my whole life, pretty much. You're going to make mistakes in business mm. one after the other sometimes. Yep. You got to laugh about them. You just got to learn from them and you got to forge ahead. Don't spend one minute being angry or upset because things didn't turn out the way they're supposed to. Yep. Just turn it around and see what you can do to make it better the next mm. time. So. That's my long-winded answer to being an entrepreneur. It's amazing. Wow, very inspiring. I truly look up to your journey. Um, Don, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out DW at DWDrums.com and Drum Channel at DrumChannel.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.